Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 1, The Magnificent Seven. Let's get this show back on the road. How excited are you about starting season three? Very excited because I don't know what direction the show is going in. Like up until now, it's been let's get the yellow eyed demon and avenge mom. We did that. Now there's this, you know, okay, let's make sure Dean doesn't die, but that doesn't feel like an ultimate evil. Season three is going to be a transition period, I think, for the show as it pivots a little bit more towards Christian lore. Season three, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit throughout the season, is also much shorter than the rest of the 14 seasons. Writer strike? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, What a time period. (laughs) It changed everything. That strike changed everything. And it is what actually led to the introduction of Cass later on. As much as I still haven't met him yet, I just, I know I want him. Oh, you will love him. Love, 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 love him. Do you know what I love? What do you love? Your recaps. Oh, it's been a while. You want to count me down? Three, two, one, go. We start with the boys back at it again, doing their thing. Dean specifically doing two people. That's, uh, you know, this whole episode with Dean and the being horny thing is just, it's good, but it's a lot. Sam is clearly trying to find a way to reverse this deal and they're just sort of back to demon hunting. And then Bobby's like, I think I found something and they meet up with Bobby, which is always a great start. And they go hunting and then they encounter more new hunters, which is always super exciting. And I love them both. And my heart was already broken when one of them goes away because it turns out the demons they found were literally the incarnation of the seven deadly sins. That is massive. And we'll get into it. But unfortunately, they do take out Isaac, leaving one of our two new hunters gone. We then have an ultimate conflict with them, where each of them faces off with a demon, one of the sins that kind of connects with them, which is an interesting topic to get into. Mystery girl with magic super demon killing knife shows up and saves Sam and then vanishes. And then what? And then we end with kind of a heated moment where Sam kind of you know turns on Dean and Dean goes, too bad, I'm dying and I'm OK with that and you're going to live. So uh, time. This is a really good recap, and it's making me realize that not much actually happens in this episode. Yeah, I mean, I only had 12 seconds left on that one. Uh, Again, for anyone who doesn't remember, it's a minute and a half I usually give myself. I was stretching that one. Like, I really had some, like, liberties with that timing because I got a little carried away. But it, it feels like a lot, but it's a lot of padded out. It really is. And we can talk about that a little bit more in story time, I guess. For now, shall we jump into the long game? Let's go. The first thing that we see this season is the season premiere recap, The Road So Far. This is something that we'll be seeing with every season premiere, and this one is no exception. I love, again, that like imagery, which even we've adopted, of being on the road kind of thing, and other shows have adopted, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. But it's very cute. It was a nice little recap. Again, not that it's been so long, like in reality, when you might wait a full year before seeing a new season, this was... 
few nights later for me, but it was a nice little recap to kind of sum things up and get us going. Well, what's interesting about the, the, the road so far is that it kind of, it's a bit more pointed. It points you in the right direction. It shows you what the writers and the showrunner want you to see before you jump into the next episode or the next season in this case. True. I think that's like with any real good show, whether it be a season or an episode, it's when the recap kind of reminds you of specific bits from past events that are more pertinent to this episode. Does unfortunately spoil sometimes where the episode's going to take you, but I think it's a fair trade-off to be reminded of the important details before going into something new so that you can connect to it properly. This is also a hallmark of network TV, so we just have to deal with it, even if we don't like it. This is also not the last time that Dean will refer to having sex with, emphasis on the quotes, twins. Next, Isaac actually refers to opening the Devil's Gate as bringing on the end of the world. This is also not the last time that our favorite boys are going to be responsible for bringing on an apocalypse. See, that makes sense, though, given the context of the show and what I'm expecting over the next 13 seasons remaining in front of us, I assume we'll have the occasional apocalypse. We're also told that there are now more demons on Earth than any hunters can hunt, and this is supposed to be very alarming, and it is very alarming. I think that that really shows where the show wants to be heading at this point. Given the condensed time in in which we've been watching these, or someone might be binging this if it's their first time, this is a very valuable point because up until now, demons have been excessively rare. They kind of had a big resurgence toward the end of season two and even the end of season one. But again, when facing a higher level demon, that kind of makes sense that more demons would come along. So the idea that now we are supposed to be in a position where demons are incredibly rare, incredibly powerful to pull a really video gamey moment. It's that thing in a game where you encounter a boss for the first time. And then several levels later, what used to be a boss is now a like somewhat regular enemy. I think the goal here is to make it seem how dangerous the demons are, which is great. But now that we're going to be getting them kind of dime a dozen, I'm not as worried when it is a demon versus anything else. And usually when that happens, we also learn of more efficient ways of dealing with them, right? Again, we'll get into it in this episode, but I feel like this episode already kind of was a disservice to demon kind in their scary level. We're also introduced to the exorcism that's going to stick around until the end of the series. So when Tamara started saying the words to that exorcism, I was like, oh, oh, that's what we have until the, oh, okay, I see. So finally, yes, we have our usual run-of-the-mill exorcism that will actually stick around. We also meet mystery girl and her trusty knife and the knife was able to take care of some demons correct there was literally a point last season it never came up on the show and i never really voiced it but i had a moment where i was like why would you make a gun with limited bullets to kill demons like why not make a sword or a knife something that kind of you know keeps working i definitely need to know everything about it and all the lore behind it and see more of it i want more magic knife We'll get there. Patience. Mm. My goodness. (laughs) And this last one is again one for those who know the show inside and out. It's very heartbreaking if you know. When Tamara is shown looking at her husband's body during his hunter's funeral, when his body is being burnt 
Sam asks Dean, you think she's going to be all right? And Dean replies, nope, definitely not. And if you know what that foreshadows too, you know. And you're probably screaming. It was already such a good line. Like, it's emotional and it's heartbreaking. I obviously don't know what you're referring to, like you and most of our listeners probably do. I am very, like, intrigued because already it's such a powerful line on its own. Shall we head into story time? We shall. We meet the brothers at a motel where Dean is trying to do some living before he dies, if you catch my drift. As we remember, Dean sold his soul to bring Sam back from death in the last episode of season two, and he only has a year to live. So in this scene, he's indulging in sex, and Sam is giving him a little bit of privacy in the Impala. Okay, I need to bring up one very specific thing about this. I will address the first part, which is the fact that the reference he then makes later on is to the Doublemint twins, which traditionally are identical twins. I know, I've seen the commercials, I'm old enough. However, when the door is opened and Sam is um, blessed with what he must be seeing and whatever, I don't know how to word that better. We only hear one female voice. My only answer to this is that it's it's network TV and they couldn't put two women. I don't know. Uh, honestly, like, I or don't know what maybe to answer Maybe there was that. only one woman in that room. Maybe there was only one woman. Or maybe he was referring to another time. We don't know. But I think the goal of showing this is to show that he's indulging. Yes, no, I agree. I just want to make sure that there's a potential moment here where... This could be a threesome still and only have one woman in it. Oh, well, really? Drew, you have to say it. <laughs> I thought I'm it was very fairly dense. obvious. <laughs> he's having he's having a taste from both sides. He, he's enjoying twins. It's, I see. It's twins. Doesn't mean both twins have to be the same gender, but there could still be three people in the room. Do I need to start drawing diagrams for you? Please don't ask me to draw diagrams. No, for no you. diagrams we can, will we be necessary. We can just carry on. It's fine. Thank you. Yeah, let's carry on. After Sam, <laughs> after Sam, Dean, and Bobby get back to Isaac and Tamara's house, or I'm not sure actually if it's their house because she ends up leaving. But it feels like their house at first, but it seems like it's just an abandoned house once we get to the end of the episode. Sam basically asks them how long they've been married, and then he asks them how they started hunting, and he realizes pretty quickly that this was a bad question. They both get, like, super quiet. He he takes a solid beat before he realizes the awkward scenario he's created. There is a good moment there where he does not realize what he has said. Like, it is not as instant as it should be, and I think that's important. That's Very, very true, and that's exactly where I'm going with this. He apologizes for asking, and to me what that says is that we can tell that he was just trying to make conversation. He really wasn't thinking any more about this. He wanted to get to know Isaac and Tamara. But when you think about it, the story of how people become hunters on Supernatural is always traumatic and tragic. And again, this speaks to how isolated from other hunters Sam and Dean have been because of John. And that Sam doesn't know not to ask this question. And it's Bobby that, you know, when he turns around, just shakes his head. He's the one to coach him 
on social interactions with other hunters. Like the good dad that he is? Like the good dad that he is. But it's true. I mean, like, we've only ever seen them interact with Bobby and Gordon. In Bobby, they clearly knew before being old enough to know what to ask and probably knew the story already or know the story. And Gordon kind of freely divulged it pretty much on his own. You know, it, 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 it was obvious to me as a viewer in that moment. But I also understand where that is a very normal human conversation to have with somebody when you're not hunting demons on a regular basis. Well, the only equivalent that I can find to this is like, how, how did you become, how did you become traumatized or how did you come to go to therapy or, you know, it's one of those seemingly invasive questions. That's an actual really good question. Once you get to know somebody or a topic that comes up more naturally, once you get to know somebody, but when you don't know them, it, it is very invasive. And I think that this is really what's happening here. Because when you're asking somebody how they became a hunter, you're asking them, so what's your trauma? What's the tragedy that happened in your life that made you want to hunt demons? There's the part of me that wants the answer. And I know we kind of get it throughout the episode. And it is fairly heartbreaking. And I would love a more, I don't want to say graphic or detailed version of it. But I love the more like their perspective on it versus a demon using it against them perspective. I really will be curious with every hunter. I mean, even now I want to know how did Bobby get into it? I'm afraid, but I want to know. We find out for Bobby. In the long game, I mentioned that Isaac had said that opening the devil's gate was basically bringing on the end of the world. And we can tell that the words are kind of rolling off of Dean, but Sam seems to feel much more responsible about it. He even brings it up later in Bobby's car when Bobby is talking about the demons that got out of the devil's gate. And Sam says, You mean the demons we let out? And I think that this is a really important moment for more than one reason. First, we're much more used to Dean feeling responsible for things that are out of his control, not Sam. And the fact that Sam is internalizing that, you know, letting the demons out of hell is his fault, I think it's really crucial to understanding his behavior in season four. It's true. It didn't even hit me right away. Like right away, obviously, my brain goes to, Dean is kind of in this weird lackadaisical state where he's on a timer. So really, like he makes the joke about the burgers, like, why should I be worried about cholesterol? It's not going to get me before the year is up. But in this moment, it really is Sam living with the guilt of what happened, even though really not his fault. Like, again, this is one of those moments of like you, you did more good than harm. You just happen to be there when it happened, and it's unfair that you're being blamed for this, or let alone blaming yourself. And for once, Dean is, I mean, he's wrong in many ways, but he's right on this one. Why do you think Sam feels more responsible? I mean, this is Hero Complex 101 again and again and again, and I think even with uh, our encounters we're going to discuss later, we'll prove that point even further. But this is Sam feeling responsible because he believes he could have made a different choice or he could have done things differently and changed the outcome, kind of like a reverse butterfly effect. You know, had he just killed Jake and accepted things and become the soldier for Yellow Eyes, then maybe he could have done something different. And there's always the what if scenario. And Sam is playing that game pretty hard right now. I hadn't thought about that necessarily under that lens. I was more thinking about he has demon blood in him. The demons are out 
quote unquote, to, to follow his lead. That was the whole evil plan of the yellow eyed demon. You know, it's a, it kind of plays a little bit into what we've discussed in the past with Dean's sexuality and how it's been compared to being like a monster. Here is people saying, hey, these monsters, specifically demons, which you share blood with, are here to destroy everything and they're the worst and we're going to kill all the demons. That does kind of include Sam once again in this whole not being human thing. And keep in mind that nobody knows about the demon blood yet. True, not even Dean. This is really like no one knows. Moving forward, after that horrific scene at the bar, which we'll discuss a little bit in Critical Time, we find out that not only are the boys up against demons, they are up against the seven deadly sins in demon form, somehow. This is the moment that Dean chooses to go, What's in the box? What's in the box? And this is how we know that it's a Sam episode, because Dean is acting like a bumbling idiot. Maybe not in front of Tamara after everything just happened? I fully agree. I don't think that the reference itself was bad. It's a great reference. If you haven't seen Seven by uh, David Fincher, it's a 1995 thriller. Go watch it. Just stop listening to us and just go watch the movie. It's excellent. My point here is that he's just quoting this excellent movie at a really inappropriate time. Like, this is not one of those times where he's quoting a B-movie that nobody knows about. He's quoting a very well-known movie, but at a completely inappropriate time. Had this happened with just Sam and Bobby and Tamara not there, I think it would be an excusable moment to kind of be like, oh, it's just Dean being Dean. As much as Dean doesn't have the best bedside manner, he's better than this. I don't think that the writing in this episode did Dean any favors. Okay, but I will also argue that I feel like the the fact that this episode has really been about the about Sam, but the Dean parts have been how Dean just doesn't really care anymore. Like both in the way he acts, the way he's perceived, the way he treats himself and others around him. I think this almost leans into that. Whether it's intentional or not, I just kind of get a vibe of like, He's loosened up enough because of the way he's thinking that it didn't occur to him how inappropriate it was to make the comment in front of Tamara then. You know what? When you say it like that, I absolutely agree. I wish that we had seen more of a progression towards that because we kind of like pick up running. We're, we're, we're picking this up and he's already this way when we're not really used to seeing him like that. He usually does care about people and he's not... But I understand what you're saying, and I think that this, this is a way to show where he's at. I guess I just kind of wish that we had seen it a bit more on a scale, going from like, oh, he cares, he cares, to like, he doesn't care anymore. But I think that this is, again, one of those really weird writing things that happens this season, where it's, it's uneven writing from beginning to end. On the other hand, though, because we're talking about Dean being not caring and just relaxed and trying to find uh, pleasure and leisure wherever he can, we're also seeing a really dark side of him. Yeah, he's ready for the grave. Whether it's tomorrow or in a year, he's just like, he's picked his plot, he's ready. At the point where we're dis- that we're talking about, we're about two-thirds into the episode, and he's already offered to sacrifice himself twice. The first time was when he said he'd go back to the bar with Tamra, to fight off the demons with her. And then the second time is when he offers to stay back to give Sam, Bobby, and Tamara more time to get away. And in both cases, 
It was a complete suicide mission, and he knew it. We can already tell that knowing that he's going to die in a year's time is making him live a lot more recklessly. And not even recklessly, because reckless would be just doing that thing, like just going back to the bar or just like disregarding them and going to do it. He's offering to be reckless, which almost seems worse because reckless, you can't stop, but he's giving them the opportunity to stop him or use him. That's very true. Um, there, there's a, a reflection to it that I didn't think about when I watched the episode. So thank you for bringing that up. Can we talk about the sin that each of our boys is facing? Yes, I also did a lot of research on this part. Let's go through the seven sins real quick and specifically what they've done in this episode. So obviously we have pride who faces against Sam, which is, I think, the most is the most obvious. (laughs) Probably the second most obvious. (laughs) Second most obvious. The most obvious is obviously lust versus Dean. I had to double check and again, I had to go through casting a little bit. So I'm breaking from story time a little bit here. I'm sorry. The one that Bobby exercises and traps immediately is Sloth. We then have uh, Envy, who is the first one exercised, who was basically kind of the troublemaker that they caught on to. Greed and Gluttony don't do much. Gluttony apparently is the one who does make Isaac drink the bleach. So we can identify them. And then Wrath, who doesn't really get any screen time, which is interesting, but might be the one possessing Isaac, I think, if I had to make an argument there. The only thing I can say is we know semi-factually that Greed is one of the other three who is with Pride when facing Sam, because she was the only one other than Lust cast by a female actress. And then even like Gluttony, even though we do see Gluttony, I had trouble pointing them out of the fact that you kind of describe them very well later on as uh, with a shaved head. But I feel like you just I'd have to go back and rewatch it a few times to try to catch everything. But that's my breakdown. So Pride versus Sam, Lust versus Dean, Sloth versus Bobby, uh, Gluttony versus Isaac and Wrath versus uh, Tamara. This is a message. The narrative is speaking to us and we need to listen. <laughs> so let's go over it really quickly. I don't want to drag this on too long, so we'll talk about them more in critical time. But obviously, Sam with the hero complex, the chosen one complex And I mean, it's a complex, but he was kind of told he was the chosen one by a few people. Oh, for Uh, sure. I mean, it's 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 a complex that's very um, that would be completely normal to have in his circumstances. I don't think anyone is blaming him for it, but he does he does think of himself very highly, and especially even compared to Dean, Uh, we saw it. I I keep thinking about that Folsom Prison Blues uh, comments that we made about how. Sam doesn't see himself as a criminal. He, he, he's very proud of the fact that he's much more than that, quote unquote. The pride with Sam makes way too much sense. And we'll even go over a little more what pride does say during this. And to remind people that is that pride is the root of all the other sins. And the fact that he is the one being confronted by multiple demons. I think all of this kind of leads to, again, this very clear narrative we have for Sam being the chosen one, both in his own mind and almost projected upon him by so many others. Well, yeah, projected upon. You say that, but Pride calls him the prodigy and the boy king. (laughs) You know, how are you not going to feel like the chosen one after this? It's hard. So Lust and Dean, that is just, I mean, what has Dean been doing all episode? He's 
a little bit of gluttony with the burgers, but even then, I don't think it was an extreme case. It was just enjoying good food. I don't get Sloth versus Bobby, and I'm afraid that we might eventually learn about it. And I'm wondering if we don't, if it isn't a reflection of maybe his younger self. I think that this is more his fear for himself than anything else. I'm not entirely sure how much it truly fits him, but I, I think that, you know, the whole point of the, the seven sins, the seven deadly sins, is that it's an exaggeration of our tendencies. And I think that this is an exaggeration of Bobby's tendencies. My kind of headcanon going into it, knowing that I don't know what we're going to learn about Bobby in the future, was from at least what I know now, that maybe Bobby recognized himself in Sloth when he was a younger person. He even kind of references like, you know, growing up lazy and like just drinking beer isn't kind of the way to go. Almost as a self-reflection, maybe that he was a lazier person in his past and regrets it. And this is his chance to kind of battle it and win clearly and easily. Good for him. Maybe it talks a bit about his, his unawareness of the supernatural before and now his chance to do something about it. I don't know. I'm kind of liking this conversation though. Like I said, I love Bobby. I want to learn more about Bobby, even if it's heartbreaking and I will kind of always sort of keep this at the back of my mind as much as I can. I feel like Wrath, if if I am right, and is the one that's possessing Isaac's corpse against Tamra, who is incredibly full of Wrath, wanting nothing but to go out there and kill all of them and get her revenge for her lost husband, is very on the nose but makes sense. And given how little character development we get out of her because we only get her for a chunk of an episode, that's actually pretty well written and put together. And I don't know enough about Isaac to understand the gluttony part of it, but... Maybe we'll learn more, or maybe it was just what worked and what was gross. I think it's what worked and what was gross. <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe there is more. And maybe it'll come to us a bit later. Briefly, what did you think of the boys' conversation at the end of the episode when Sam says that making the deal was selfish and Dean basically says that he's looking forward to dying? I think I've made this point clear earlier. Dean feels like his time is up. He has been saved several times from death, always against his will, and has never been happy about it. He is finally in control. He is finally the one who's able to say, I know when I'm going to die. I have an expiration date. It's weirdly peaceful and calming to him, I think, that he's finally in control, even if it is in such a morbid way. I don't think he's so much looking forward to dying. I feel like that was just kind of for shock value and... An exaggeration. I think he's looking forward to being able to rest. I know that's kind of the, the classic what does dying mean for a character in a heroic story, but he's looking forward to the end, knowing that he's done everything he, he can and he's going to where he should be going. Yeah, I think that that's that's basically what's happening as well. I mean, you can tell the push and pull when you were talking about Dean always being saved from death against his will. This is exactly what happened to Sam. He never asked to be brought back. Dean brought him back. And now, who's going to be left behind when Dean is gone? It's going to be Sam. I think Dean feels like he's done everything he can. I mean, with how reckless he's tried to be and how reckless he is being, it's not even a matter of he wants to die. He just knows he's earned it finally. God, that hurt oh, to Dean. say. Oh, Dean! 
Oh, Dean. Shall we move on to critical time? Let's go. So, with the start of any season, I have a weird guess who the writer was, but do you want to enlighten me? (laughs) Sure, and I think you would be right. This episode was written by Eric Kripke and Emily McLaughlin. And while we haven't seen anything from Emily McLaughlin before, we are going to see an episode uh, of hers later this season, which is going to be exciting. It's an exciting episode. The director of this episode is Kim Manners, so that also explains again the beautiful shots of Dean. Would you like to get us started on your very first new lore segment? I would love to. All right, regale me. The Seven Deadly Sins. We begin with Aristotle's Ethics, essentially a deep dive into the human philosophy in which everything about humans is a balance. There's a golden ratio. There is a goal we are trying to strike. This goes back to ancient Rome and ancient Greece and all the philosophers who would constantly go on to adopt Aristotle's ethics and further advance them all the way up until Pope George, where we over time have these seven deadly sins who actually started as eight characteristics of humanity that could be either excess or deficient. So an example of this would be courage. If you had excess courage, you were reckless. If you were deficient in courage, you were a coward. The theory and concepts would evolve, and eventually we'd actually reach the seven sins we know today. This was done by merging a few sins and even adding a few additional sins, but effectively in every iteration of the eight or six or seven, it was basically the same seven. You just had some that were combined or some that were separated or some that were just redundant. Of the seven sins, who I will repeat just for the sake of the uh, narration, pride, lust, sloth, envy, greed, gluttony, and wrath can actually all be tied back to human nature and negative traits of humanity. They're pretty straightforward. These are things that you would be chastised for, seem to be not pure if you were in excess of. Um, There actually are seven virtues that are basically the opposite of these four. So instead of lust, it would be, uh, I think initially it was virginity and that was changed. Uh, But things like greed with charity or uh, pride with selflessness. And I want to focus on one in particular because clearly, based on the story we watched today, it is the most important of the seven sins, and that would be pride. Pride is considered to be the most demonic and angelic of all the sins. There wasn't much writing on this one, but I do believe the intent is that it is the lack of pride or the excess of pride that put you closest to God and furthest from God. In fact, pride is considered to be the sin that is most heavily connected to the devil itself. Like I said, is seen as the source of the other sins. Ideally, that if you have too much pride, you eventually kind of lean towards one of the other six. Pride is kind of the root. And that, there you go. And there is the lore of the seven deadly sins and their origins. You know, it's really interesting that it's, it takes root in Aristotle's philosophy. I studied Aristotle very briefly, very, very briefly, about a very specific topic. And it was actually about gender and sexuality. This idea of like balance and whatnot, it's something that comes back a lot in in his writing and in his thought. He was convinced that menstruation was women's way of purifying their bodies and getting rid of impurities. And that's that 
is where the idea that menstrual blood is impure comes from. And again, even through my readings of this, it tends to be a lot of cases where a philosopher from the Greek and Roman empires would posit something which would then later be picked up by the church and adapted to better suit their views. So I'd be curious to know how far back it goes before it became a matter of purity versus impurity, the same way uh, I I gave the example of the golden ratio that Aristotle uh, posited initially, which the examples of a courage where there is something in you and either you can have too much or not enough. And depending on how you balance out, you would lean towards one of two things, like with courage, the recklessness or the cowardice, that neither one was necessarily a good thing. They were both in the negative, but on different scales. I'd be curious to know how pseudoscientific before it became spiritual. Ooh, you ask a really interesting question because there is no such thing as... Try to think of a man like Aristotle explaining, and I'm taking menstruation as an example, but like try to have him explain what menstruation is, knowing that they, at the time, nobody had any idea of how the human body actually worked. They thought that your spirit came from fire inside of you and that that the heat that you're emitting is a proof of that fire that's inside of you. So it's actually really interesting. And what you're describing, like that cross between medicine and spirituality, that's what is called in philosophy metaphysics, which explains what the soul is made of, what is the soul, what is it to be a human being, etc. <laughs> I do have some thoughts. So thank you so much, Drew, for this amazing lore segment. Frankly, I loved it. <laughs> I want more of it next time. So thank you. I do have something to kind of like bring us back to the episode a little bit more, to center us a bit more in the episode. I would like to talk about the moment when Isaac is about to go into the men's room at the bar to go get the demon, and he tells Tamara to pull the car out back. He's heading into the men's room, and he gets like accosted by this white man with a shaved head. And for a second, I swear, I forgot that this was supernatural, and I thought, oh my god, Isaac is about to get attacked by a white supremacist. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think I had that much of a disconnect when I saw it, but there was very much the, oh, there's just a random neo-Nazi in this bar who's going to be racist. There you go. In my defense, Isaac and Tamara are the only black folks at the bar, and this show has already given us racist killers, so I feel like I wasn't that far off. Now, of course, it turns out that he's a demon, but the racial subtext stays. The, the, the man with the shaved head actually says, I don't like hunters in my bar. And the first demon that we know of says, you walked into the wrong, you really walked into the wrong place. And I know that the surface text is demon talking to hunters, but visually you see a bunch of white people threatening a black couple. I'm just not sure what the, the take home message is supposed to be here because it sort of feels like it was just done to be edgy not to actually send a message or a narrative message of some sort. And that's also without mentioning the fact that Lust is a queer woman. I definitely got that same vibe. Like right away, I was like, I could pause this frame and show it to anyone and say like, which 
movie about racism is this from? And people will start giving me guesses. No one would go like, oh, they're demons and they're just hunters. Like, it's very clearly like the diner even looks like an or the bar. Sorry, it looks like an old like 50s era diner. Like it has like a vibe to it. Like it looked like it was chosen to look like something from a segregated America. I don't remember what town they're in at that moment, but I mean, there are sundown towns in the U.S., so I wouldn't... It's not impossible. I think it was either done unintentionally, which seems incredibly daft, or it was done to be edgy, which is incredibly dense. Either way, just not great. Because again, it doesn't go to the, to the bottom of the metaphor. It doesn't go to the bottom of the visual. And... When you stay in the, in the, on the superficial when it comes to social justice issues in media, it, it's bound to not work in your favor. This is now the time where we're going to do a quick personal reflection and see if we were called to any action in this episode. And I would like to volunteer to go first. This week's episode puts the boys face-to-face with their greatest sin or maybe their greatest toxic trait or habit. And it reminds me of how important it is to reflect on our own challenges before reflecting on the challenges of others. And it's calling me to do that, to try to be more honest with myself about my own shortcomings. I would like to take a slightly different angle and actually kind of lean a little bit on my lore segment, which is the idea of that golden ratio, the idea that you can lack something, but you can also have too much of something. And it's finding that balance in yourself. And as someone who worked retail, you kind of get that like ingrained in you of like learning different skills and either underusing or overusing things. And I think it's a good way to just sort of evaluate yourself. It's not a game of can I be 100% Or am I 0%? It's finding that balance. And also, I think it's fair to accept that you're not going to hit, you know, like I think the the term golden mean is is well worded or the golden ratio is well chosen because you can't get gold every time. No one's perfect. It's finding where you are and how you can adjust to either be more or less of something and be close, but not perfect. The proverbial happy medium. Well, I think the listeners have heard enough from us. Shall we see what our community has to share with us? Sounds good to me. This week, we have a voicemail from Audrey. Hi, Mary and Drew. My name is Audrey. I use she, her pronouns. And uh, I just discovered carrying wayward with my mom about like a couple weeks ago and it's already become like one of my favorite podcasts. I look forward each week to the new episode and yeah I love how you focus so much on characterization as opposed to plot because like absolutely Supernatural is something you watch for the characters I certainly do and I also love how you separate the podcast into story time and critical time I think that it's like really useful to be able to talk about both like characterization and like what's going on in the story as well as like you know like the fact that it is created by flawed humans and I think that's especially useful for like a show as old and for want of a better word problematic as Supernatural so yeah I really appreciate that 
I wanted to sort of like make you aware if you're not already of like Supernatural's connection with um, Doctor Who. I don't know if you've ever um, seen that, but there's like there's a lot of there's a lot of connection there. I guess like the first thing is that while seasons like six, seven, and eight were airing, they were like very connected in like fan spaces, which I'm sure you know. I wanted to also like like tell you about some Doctor Who references that they make in Supernatural. So firstly, I was um, re-listening to your Night Shifter episode a couple days ago, and I wanted to tell you that the mandroid, sorry for saying that word, but the mandroid um, is like, the picture that Ronnie shows Sam and Dean is a Cyberman from Doctor Who, which is like one of the most well-known monsters in that show. And another couple of references that I can think of are, Drew, when you first said that you were afraid of, like, mannequin creatures, I thought immediately of, like, the first episode of Doctor Who in the season six episode of Supernatural, Mannequin 3, The Reckoning. They have, like, very similar mannequin monsters. Um, And the character in that episode's name is Rose, which is the name of a Doctor Who character. And then... In season seven, in the episode The Girl Next Door, Sam's, like, childhood friend, Amy Pond, shares the name of another Doctor Who character. So, yeah, I just wanted to sort of, like, tell you about that connection, if you didn't already know about it. I love Doctor Who, and I love Supernatural, and I I love, like, when there's, like, those little Easter eggs. Um, so yeah, (laughs) I hope that, like, enlightens you a little bit to some, like, subtle little references that they make, even if you, like, already knew about the connection as a whole. I love carrying my words so much, and thank you so much for making it. Yeah, bye. Because I don't watch Doctor Who, I am not a Whovian. I will let you get all of your nerding out done, I promise, but I will get started with responding to Audrey. So Audrey, thank you so much for your message. Like I just said, I am not a Whovian. Is that a thing? Is that how you call like that, the, that the, is the, that the... Yes, is the, okay, the thank you. Use, yes, Whovians. <laughs> Whovians. Because... While I I didn't watch, I haven't watched Doctor Who, I am very aware of the super Who-lock, you know, merging of fandoms that happened on Tumblr around that time. So I did watch Supernatural, I did watch Sherlock, but I just, I missed out on, on Doctor Who. It's never too late, I know. And I think that it's something that I would enjoy, especially given how much you, Drew, and Rochelle enjoy it. I feel like I would definitely love Doctor Who. So go ahead, please, dear. Answer. Audrey, it's going to be a stream of consciousness, but right away, thank you for that beautiful message. I love that your mother's also watching with you and listening with you. That is so cute. I, I just, I love that kind of connection that you can share with someone close to you. I will admit the references you did point out, I was unaware of, and I did not know we'd get that many. I mean, little ones here and there. I think I made a joke in one of the episodes about Sam being creeped out by an angel statue, and right away that was where my mind went was, you know, don't blink. 
But the fact that we legitimately get an Amy Pond, I am so excited to scour that episode for references when it comes up. But yes, I am a huge Doctor Who fan. Yes, the Mannequin episode as the first episode with Eccleston was definitely difficult, but I made my way through it. And I am looking forward to more creepy mannequins. I knew we'd get them eventually. But yeah, I, I'm going to admit, though, I was never like huge in Tumblr. So I definitely knew there was a Sherlock Doctor Who crossover, both from the production side of things and the fandoms. I never really got inundated with the supernatural side of the Doctor Who crossover fandom. Like I knew it existed, but I was never fully exposed to it. I'm sorry, were you not on Super Who Lock on Tumblr in like 2013? I wasn't big on Tumblr. My Tumblr was really like niche and like weird even for that. Like, I know that's saying a lot when you talk about niche that's on Tumblr. That's saying but a like, lot for 2013 Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, I think I only really got on Tumblr too in like late 2016 even. Like, I was really late to Tumblr. It just didn't hit me. So I think I didn't get it. But knowing there's that many connections, I am so excited. And I'm just saying this on the record purely out of spite. If Mary will continue doing the show with me post-Supernatural, it's going to be Doctor Who. So there's part of me that wants her to watch it, but part of me that's like, I need her to wait several more years. So we'll see what happens. But well, thank you, Audrey, for launching thank this. You. <laughs> thank you, Audrey, for letting me indulge in that one. <laughs> shall we head on down to the crossroads? Yes, we shall. Would you like to get started with your deal today? And I think it is a... Very, very simple deal. You brought something up early on. Actually, I think even in the long game, it was that long ago you brought it up. Dean's development in this episode felt very rushed. It's been a little bit of time since the season two finale. Like, I, I, I do they actually give us a time jump specifically? Not that I'm aware of, actually, when I think about it. OK, I, I kind of get the vibe that maybe it's been a few weeks, maybe a month. All this to say this should have been either A, a two-parter, or B, the Seven Deadly Sins should have stayed around for a few more episodes. Like, I get killing them with the knife was important and will be important because I want to know more about that. But to make these out as such incredibly dangerous things, especially after I also brought up earlier kind of that whole how demons were meant to be the big bads and now they're kind of like the monster of the weeks. Like, this is a really quick step down, in my opinion, and I feel like it didn't give them the grandiose they deserved. Like, this either could have been just some demons and could have been a little more demon lore and maybe meeting, like, one of the sins and having to go through all seven over the course of a season, maybe. Very Scott Pilgrim-esque, I know, but my point stands. I feel like the fact that two of them did, two, possibly three, did not get speaking lines is an absolute shame. You're going to get your wish in season five. This feels like I'm excited about it. Is this a monkey pod moment? Probably, but I'm excited <laughs> about it. Good, good. I'm happy that you're excited. Let's let's keep that happiness going. <laughs> <laughs> and yourself, what would you be changing? I would change something entirely inconsequential. Near the end, Dean is mocking Sam for needing a girl to save him. Just remove that line. It's, there's no need for it. It doesn't make Sam look bad. It just makes Dean look bad. I would have even taken a line chastising Sam for not hitting on her over that line. That's how much I hated it. Yeah, it really just sort of felt 
and the thing is, it didn't even feel that out of place because it just felt like Dean ribbing on Sam. But when you really do peel back even a little bit and realize that he's basically being sexist, it's basically literally is being sexist. It, it's just it's so. Yeah, but even this entire episode, even the way he hit on women and the way he treated women, the entirety of this episode just it came across as lazy writing. Yes, I agree. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigourou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our bunker patron, Katira, for her generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Audrey for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our November live event will be decided by our patrons. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Five. Five. Four. Four. Three. Three. Two. two one. One. <laughs> <laughs> Cookie Monster came to get with us? As if I wasn't the one who told you, let's be serious about yep. this. <laughs> Total serious recording, it's late, we had to go quickly. Cookie Monster can come with you. <laughs> <laughs>